Come on, have a seat, have a seat, have a seat. Let it go. Let it... I haven't started. You got you to back that up. Augustine has this amazing, amazing theological proposition of this thing called the beatific vision. And what a beatific vision is, is the day that you will see the face of Christ. You will see every delight, every joy, every love, everything that you marveled at in this world, you will see in his face. I captured you. I didn't think I would. Because I'm not an egomaniac. I, I, don't, I don't want the applause of men. I, I don't want that. But I want to remember this moment because what Christ promises me is that the day that I see him face to face, the visio day, which theologians call the face of God will reveal unto me all the joys that I've ever experienced in this life. And yet, every joy that I've ever experienced here would only be a shadow of what I will actually see then. And this moment, I know I will see in the face of Jesus. I know it. So I'm going to remind myself very often... The moment that I, I will get to see Jesus one day, and I will know that 1122 was a part of it, adding on to the clarity of that joy and the love that I feel tonight, and I am so eternally grateful. I'm grateful because life has not been easy for me in the past four years. My wife and I had prayed earnestly, asking Christ to make a significant, significant change in our lives because we were dry. And we didn't have a mission. And we didn't have a real calling and a purpose. And we were just mundane, doing the church thing, doing the pastor thing. And so God would eventually pull out from under us the very comfort of L.A., which I was born and raised, and he would try to transplant us to a city that I did not like called Fremont, where there are giant fans, not Dodger fans. <laughs> and it irritated me, where things close at 9 p.m. for no apparent reason. <laughs> and I remember my wife and I came out of a coffee shop being kicked out at 9 on a Friday night, and I turned to her, what a crappy city. <laughs> I remember saying that. And yet, what God would teach us and convict us is, to say, Ryan, Jenny, I do not want you to go into the city to extract the benefits from the city, but I want you to go into the city to become the benefit 
to bring the gospel, to be a missionary to a place where no benefit is found. So we heard God clear. So we ended up moving to Fremont. And four years ago, we would start a journey, a faith leap, a call to church planting. We didn't know what was to come about. But it was a marvelous journey. And as Pastor Joby has told you, it's been a miracle. By not my account, by nobody's doing, but God's grace and his power and his authority and the desire to win over the entire city of Fremont, our church grew. Our church is one of the biggest churches in our city already, if not the biggest. We've baptized over 300 people in our short four years. 60% of them being men, which we're really excited about. Very, very excited. And we serve the city as best as we can. With all that said, it's been very, very difficult. You see, three years ago, my wife, who boasts of an immune system like the one of the Wolverine, you know, um, she started to get really sick, gravely sick. And she went into the emergency room, and we would later discover that it was sepsis, a a bacterial disease, an infection in her blood, and all her organs were shutting down. And I remember thinking right outside the living, I mean, the emergency room, thinking, baby, please don't die. Please don't die on me. Never thought I would say that. Six months later, I would crash in a motorcycle accident going over a ravine 30 feet down living to tell the story, only with a broken back and a broken uh, scapula. And then things just got worse. Before church planting, I knew not of depression. And yet depression became a real thing in my life. And then you might have heard just some of the stories of how we've been getting attacked and somebody threw a pipe bomb right in front of my door. I didn't even know at the time when it went off that my family was there. I I realized that my wife was there also. And I was so scatterbrained because of all the, just the persecution that we were feeling, apparently just because people were offended by the gospel. By the very people who say tolerance is the primary, primary value, and they weren't tolerant of me. A few months later, that, uh, later after that, two weeks before Mother's Day, my mom passed away. Six months after that, we discovered my second son was diagnosed with autism. Life has been hard. Life has been challenging. The last four years have been very difficult. But I consider my sufferings and my losses rubbish compared to the great glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and this gospel of grace, this gospel that says that 
God loves me in spite of me. That God cannot love me more than he already loves me. And what 1122 is for me is that reminder of this grace. So our relationship absolutely changed on December 23rd, 2013 when you sent me these cards. Now, I couldn't bring all of them because I don't work out. Okay, but you sent me over 3,000 cards. Good thing I'm a reader because I read every single one of them. And I continue to. And so I just brought, honestly, just a pinch, a sample of what you've shared. You are loved so very much. Please stay strong. You are making a difference. Thanks for fighting for the Bay Area. Thank you so much for living out the calling God has placed in your life. I love this one. It says, apparently this person owns Florida because she says, we love you in Florida. (laughs) Everybody in Florida loves me. It's awesome. (laughs) This person doesn't have a name, but it says, please, please, please keep going. I know it's a dude because it's all in caps. So (laughs) I am sorry that you are having to face the difficulties of dealing with the ignorance and the intolerance of the claim of the gospel. You cannot imagine how much you mean to all of us. I love you and your family. Who are you? (laughs) Who are you to radically grace me like this? I am undeserving, so undeserving. By the way, is Ariel here in this room? Ariel, youth student, 15 years old. Could you just stand up if you're Ariel real quick? Are you shy? Just Ariel, go ahead and quickly sit down because you look like an introvert. Go ahead. <laughs> Ariel sent me a text message through uh, Dakota, one of the uh, staff here. And Ariel, I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you for your powerful words. In fact, actually, I, in, in my little office that they gave me, Um, I pray for you. I pray that you would be the voice of your generation. And that, yeah. Top it all off, you brought me here on a family vacation last year, which was awesome. And when I told my son I was coming to the church of 1122 and going to see my family here and going to see Pastor Joby, he said, Dad, are we going too? And I said, no. And he goes, then are you vacationing by yourself? And I said, yes, no. (laughs) Um, Did you know that I wanted to just be treated as one of you, so they actually set an office back there for me, an office with a name placard and everything. I mean, it is, there's a family photo of me. It's a little freaky, but there's a family photo of me in that office. I mean, it's awesome. So I feel like I am coming back to my East Coast family, and I've been preaching a lot in different churches, sharing the gospel with many churches, and every time I come up, I feel a little butterflies, uh, just floating, I, I feel a little bit nervous, but for some reason tonight, I wasn't nervous at all. You know why? Because here's what I say every time I go to other churches to speak, I say, God, you have applied the gospel to me, I am the son of Christ, 
And the son of Christ and the identity that I find there is far more significant than being a good preacher. So I want to hold on to the son of Christ. I know that I'm cherished by you. I am loved by you. So it doesn't matter if I mess up or it doesn't matter if I do great. I'm still the son of a king. And I feel the same way tonight. I feel the same way. I feel like I could mess up or I could do great. It does not matter because I will be the son of Christ at the end of tonight. And so what I want to do tonight is to really just share my heart with you. Because my heart just explodes in in remembrance of you. Do you know that I pray for you every Thursday night? Do you know that I pray for you every Sunday morning? Almost as if you are my family. Because you are my family. And I'm so grateful to be here. Grateful for the gospel love that we get to share. Now, before we get into the main text of the Bible, if you do have your Bible, I just want you to flip to Psalm 42. This is just kind of like an appetizer for us, okay? So let's look at Psalm 42. When I thought about Church of 1122, um, and I see your building, um, you have a lot of dead carcasses around, um, and um, lots of deer everywhere, and I thought this was very uh, fitting for uh, an appetizer for us. Verse 1. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been food. It's been my food day and night. Stop there. Do you see what's happening here? Oh, so many of us love the song, As the deer panted for the water. And it's such a beautiful, wonderful scene. You know, of a deer with all of its majestic antlers gently flowing down. Seeing the stream coming down and lapping the water ever so gently. What a beautiful picture. You've seen it all. You've seen the stitch in the living room of your grandma's house. You've seen it. And yet that's not the picture at all that this is describing. It says, as the deer pants for water. You know what this means? This deer is about to die. This deer is about to die of thirst. This deer is about to die of dehydration. And if not for the water, the tongue will continue to stick to the roof of her mouth and she'll need this water to hydrate her. She'll need this water to energize her, invigorate her. And yet she can't find this water unless she finds this water. She will die. And so as the deer pants for this water, the psalmist is crying out for God in the very same way. Don't you see that this text is absolutely a grave, desperate search for the Lord Jesus Christ? It is not beautiful. It's not beautific. It is in desperation. It is a longing. It is a striving. It is a thirsting. It is a hunger. I need you, Christ, so desperately. And the question we start tonight is, why don't we thirst like this? 
when we describe Christ, when we describe our faith, why don't we thirst like this dear thirst? Well, let me take you to another passage. Just flip and go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, it says, O God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See what's happening here. The NIV uses the word longs. My flesh longs for you. Now mind you, this is David, a dude, talking to his masculine God using words like, I earnestly seek you. I thirst for you. I long for you. See how awkward that is? Could you imagine? Hey, just take for, just for a moment, just imagine. I know your pastor works out. It's okay, I can say this because I've seen them in the bikini briefs and all muscled out, <laughs> seeing that picture. Could you imagine me telling your pastor, Joby, Joby, my soul thirsts for you. <laughs> my soul longs for you. In the desperate moments of the night, I think of you. Joby, Joby, could you imagine... What is going on here in this text? I'll tell you what's going on. It's a man that is desperate for the presence of Christ. Are you desperate for the presence of Christ? Are you this desperate? Does this describe you? I earnestly seek you. I long for you. I think about you all day long. My soul clings to you. My lips speak of you. But listen, the Bible just doesn't talk about just uh, uh, people of great desperation. People in history spoke like this also. Let me give you an example of St. Augustine. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to rid of those fruitless joys which I have once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Though not to flesh and blood, you outshine all light. Yet are hidden deeper than any of the secrets in our heart. You who surpass all honor. Though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. So Augustine has this great bite of steak, and he says, Christ, you are greater. Augustine has great sex, and he says, Christ, you are greater. Augustine goes on a great vacation, and he says, Christ, you are still greater. You who are sweeter than all of my pleasures. John Owen, the great Puritan, says this, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell in all my thoughts and affections until all things below become unto me a dead and deforming thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. Here's a question tonight. Why don't we long like this? Why, when we are 
saturated and filled with the Holy Spirit does it seem like there's a hole in the bottom and it just all leaks out. Just in a matter of time. Why does it seem like these men and these women in Scripture long and desperately seek God and they have this incredible intimacy and yet we fail to experience similar things? Why? And tonight I just want to make a case. And it's very simple. The size of your gospel determines the size of the heart you have for Christ. That's my claim. The bigger the gospel is in your sight, in your heart, the bigger God will be in your life. And my job tonight is to help you maybe perhaps to see the value of the gospel in your life. So we're going to go to our main text now. And if you have your Bibles, again, go to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to stay there. Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46. There are two combined parables here that Jesus teaches out, explaining the value of the gospel. Because the size of your gospel determines the size of your heart for God. And we need to talk about this because my greatest fear for this generation, for you and I, is that we will be swept up into something that looks like the gospel, looks like discipleship, looks like following Jesus, and yet it isn't. And we want to redefine what that looks like for us in our context today. So Matthew 13, starting verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That is the word of the Lord for tonight. And I just want to just pull out two principles and elaborate under these two principles. Expound on them. And the first thing that I want you to notice is this. Spiritual treasure is always hidden in a field of the ordinary. The spiritual treasure is always hidden in a field of ordinary. Now, look at the context of this passage. You might be thinking, well, it's pretty likely that this man finds this amazing treasure in such an ordinary field. Well, not then it wasn't. Because you have to understand, in a place like Palestine, a war-torn country then, just like it is a war-torn country now, because they didn't have banks, because they didn't have security, if you had some treasure and you know that there's an army coming into your town to pillage it, you did not keep your goods, you didn't keep your treasure in your house. Instead, you went to an ordinary field and you dug a hole and you buried it and you marked it and you prayed and you hoped that you would actually survive that that attack. The reality is very few people did. But if you did, then you would go to that marked place and dig it up. The reality is most didn't. And so archaeologists know that in the arenas of Palestine that they would dig up and they're not surprised that treasure is found. Now, check this out. Now, Farmer Fred, he goes into town and he buys this field. Could you imagine? He was the talk of the town. Everybody said, could you imagine Farmer Fred? Do you know what he's doing? He's buying that field. What, you mean that field that's really rocky? That field at the edge of town where nothing grows? 
you know, that field that is just really nasty and undulated? Yeah, that field. What a stupid idiot. I cannot believe he's buying that field. But guess what? Farmer Fred is rolling in the bank. He is going to the bank with a big grin on his face because he knows that the treasure that is buried in this ordinary field is worth more than not only all that he owes, but it's more, worth more than the entire town. The treasure that's buried there is extremely valuable. And in the ordinary, in the ordinary, Jesus buries spiritual treasure. So the counterintuitive thing in this world is this, that under glitz and glamour and lights, you know, special things are found only there. You know, special things are found in, in deep caves and, and really remote places. But in reality, this passage teaches us that spiritual treasure is hidden in a field of ordinary. Let's break this down. Let's dig a little deeper. One of the implications is the spiritual treasures are found in ordinary people. It's found in ordinary people. This is powerful because why was it revealed to Farmer Fred? Well, let me tell you this. A few years back, my, my 10-year-old son was seven. And when he was seven, he actually swam in this, like, swim school meet. And he brought home a ribbon. And it said, 17th place. Okay, this, this ribbon wasn't red. It wasn't yellow. It wasn't blue or green or all the other primary colors. It was periwinkle, okay? And never mind that I've never seen a ribbon with two digits on it, like 17. It's crazy. It's preposterous because I grew up in the generation that if you wanted a ribbon, you actually had to win. But oh, this generation, let's save this boy some self-esteem. Let's protect his heart. So that we all could win 17th place periwinkle ribbon. Here you go. <laughs> now this is exactly what God is not doing. God doesn't choose ordinary people because he wants to bolster up your self-esteem. He could care less about your self-esteem. You know what he cares about? His glory. So he cares about his glory so much that what he will do is to use very ordinary, average, dumb idiots, sinful, sinful, judgment-receiving people, and he will use them, and he will glorify himself by using them in extraordinary ways. That's what he's going to do. And that's why 1 Corinthians one twenty six says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to Worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Amen? And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are unto his glory. So C.S. Lewis writes this book, The Great Divorce. It's one of my favorite books. And he makes this point wonderfully well he tells about this young man who had a dream a vision of going to heaven and as he goes to heaven there is a guide that shows him all around and before he knows it around this corner comes this 
beautiful parade. All the kids surround the central figure. These men and women throwing confetti, music everywhere. Major celebration for the beautiful figure. He's trying to look into what is in the middle and yet cannot see because of this beautific, brilliant vision. So he turns to his guide and he says, well, is it? Is it? Not at all, said the guide. He said, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. I said to my guide, well, she seems to be what, what, a person of great importance. Yes, she was one of the great ones. Have you not heard that fame up here and fame on earth are two different things? Well, who are all these young men and women around her? They're her sons and daughters, said the guide. She must have had a very large family then. Well, every boy that met her became her son. Every girl became her daughter. She had no children of her own. Well, isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? I said to my guide, no. There were those that steal from other people's children, but her love was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. And few men looked on her without loving her, but it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. Already there's more joy enough in her little finger to awaken all the dead things of this universe in life. Now here's the question. Who is Sarah Smith of Golders Green? The answer? She's a nobody. She's a nobody. Sarah Smith of Golden Green. She wasn't married. She was from middle of nowhere. She didn't have a lot of money. She didn't have a great profession. And you wouldn't know her on this earth because the world has taught us that we need to constantly look for the next uh, Matt Chandler's or the next um, Joby Martin's. But the reality is that this room is filled with Sarah Smiths. Ordinary people that God will stupefy the world by using them in extraordinary ways. And he will use us to disciple the great next generation of this city. And he will receive all that glory. Because don't you know, Fame up in heaven and fame on earth are two different things. Do you believe it? It's true. That's why God's mission and his plans to change the world always starts with ordinary people in ordinary places. I'll prove it to you. This room is filled absolutely with ordinary people. But you know, something extraordinary is happening in Jacksonville. And you don't know this because you're so immersed in it. But I know it because I'm not regularly a part of it. It's like, you know, if I see my son every single day, I don't see him grow. But if you were to see him today, and the last time you saw him was in February, you would think that he's a giant of a man. You would. Because you haven't seen him. And you have this outside perspective. Could I just bring to you just a slight outside perspective of how the world views 1122? Do you know that you are not an unknown quantity? 
that many people are watching you, that many people are inspired by you, many people learn from you. And oh, I know, I've heard it all. You know what? We're in the Bible Belt, right? You stick with cross and everybody comes. A thousand people come and worship it. I heard it all. Well, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me just argue with that real quick, okay? I, I could because I saw him in a bikini. I could, I could. All right, let me argue with that. Listen, if that was true, guy like, a guy like me who is in a very non-Bible Belt place, which is say, oh, 1122, they're just in a Bible Belt place. But the reality is even the non-Bible Belt arenas and churches are looking into your church. We're all learning from you. We're all fascinated by what God is doing in you and through you. And yes, you have great leaders. Yes, you have incredible, gifted people that lead this church. But you know what the prize prized possession of 1122 is the thousands of Sarah Smiths of Golden Creek. Amen? Amen. It's you. It's the priesthood of believers. It is us together that make up 1122. And you are doing such extraordinary things, you don't even know it. You don't even know it. From our network of Acts 22 to the world, there's a reason why Okay, Pastor Joby is being invited to all these different places to speak. It is not because of his felt figure. It is not because of his striking look. It's because of what God is doing through him and through this incredible church. And this church is filled with Sarah Smith. And God is using you in just incredible, incredible ways. Here's the second thing. Spiritual treasures are found under the ordinary message. It's found under an ordinary message. Now, put it this way. The reason why everybody's laughing at Farmer Fred is because they can't imagine that such a treasure could be buried in just such an ordinary field that we pass by every single day. Oh, it's so ordinary. The gospel is so ordinary. I've heard the gospel before, and this is my mistake. In my life, that's how I treated the gospel too. Oh, yeah, Christ died on the cross for me, and because he did and he paid my debt, Now he receives me, he invites me, and if I accept him, then I'm set free in his grace, right? That's so ordinary. And the world will tell us, that's too simplistic. That's too simplistic. Where is the nine conscious of the level of awareness that you have to climb in order to finally be illuminated by the presence of God? Where is that kind of stuff? And I did the same thing. I went to seminary, I studied Greek, and I studied Hebrew, I studied Aramaic, and I got like, you know... I guess 129 degrees, you know, um, I, I did all that. But all the days of my life, I was just kind of passing by this glorious gospel that was just under my feet. The gospel that is preached every single day at my church and at your church. You know that Pastor Joby and I, we preach one message every single Sunday, except we preach from the different text, right? We preach the gospel. And the, and the beauty of this gospel is so illuminating. Let me give you an example of this. Let me just give you an example. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, we're talking about the gospel here, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You know what this is saying? 
Now think about the intellect of angels. Do they see it more than we do? Of course they do. Yet they continue to stare at the gospel and they're absolutely marveled by it. And the question is, what are we missing about the gospel? How come we don't see the beatific beauty of the gospel? What is it about us? Oh boy, that's so overblown. The gospel is the solution for every one of my problems, every one of my self-esteem issues, every, every, every problem of my guilt, and every problem of my shame. The gospel, you know, answers all that solution. It's so overly, you know, used. It's so overly simplistic. And I would just argue with you. The gospel is everything. It is absolutely everything. Um, let me try to briefly explain the significance of the gospel here. Um, that, this treasure that we find, you know, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, has the most amazing, amazing illumination of the gospel. You, you've heard it be preached here, and I'll, I'll share with you now. He says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay? This is the theology of the substitutionary atonement. And so let's just break this down just for a moment. He says, it says here, okay, that he made him who knew no sin. Who is that? That's a short list. That is a very short list. Okay? The world is divided in two categories, sinners and Jesus. Okay? James 2 says if you sin once, then you send all the sins. It's the same thing. That Christians are not graded on the curve. Do you realize that when we take a test and you get one question wrong, according to God's law, you failed. You don't get a 99. You don't get a 98. And so many Christians try so hard to get that C- minus so that they could get to heaven. Oh, you know, I suck at these things, and I know I sin this way, but you know what? 61% of the time, I'm good. And this is our mindset. That's why I'm a good person. It's what we think. But according to God's word, according to Deuteronomy, according to Galatians 3, it's just one sin. Just one sin casts us into judgment and hell. That's what it says, right? So there's two categories, sinners and Jesus, perfect imperfect. Okay? And the reason why we love the good language, the reason why we use it all the time, like, oh, I'm good, I'm better than other people, I'm, I, I, I'm a good person. The reason why is we're comparing ourselves to each other. Okay? But the scripture tells us, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, if you're going to compare with anybody, compare to me. And you fail. Judgment. Unless... As James 2 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's only one person who did not sin, and he's talking about Jesus here, who knew no sin, to be sin. To be sin. Now, now him who knew no sin was Jesus. Now, when you talk about Christ, you're talking about the person who was without sin. The book of Hebrews says he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Sinless. Then here's the next question. In what sense was Jesus made sin? Some heretics will teach us that because of Jesus' sin, he actually had to go to hell and to pay until he faced the demons. He paid 
time and punishment for his sins. Then he was able to rise again. That's what they say. But we know that that's blasphemy because on the cross, he was not a sinner. He was a lamb without any sin or any blemish. Then the question still remains, what sense was he made sin? One sense and one sense alone. That on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe even though he did not commit a single sin. That God treated Jesus as if he committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though he did not commit a single one. The reality is God punished Jesus as if he had lived your life. Yeah, God had punished Jesus as if he lived your life or even my life, as if he committed all the sins, all the wrath of God poured out into him. Then here's the next part. That's not all, because in some sense, the second latter half of this verse is even more meaningful. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the other side of the substitutionary atonement, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why Jesus lived 33 years? Did you ever wonder that? I mean, why did he live 33 years? If I was devising a plan of salvation, okay, all I would do is to say, Father, essentially I need to die for my people, so all I need is a weekend, right? I'll go down on a Friday, come back on a Monday, and we'll call it good, right, Father? Right? And essentially, we know that is true. Essentially, that that is the component, those three days in which we find our redemption and salvation. Then the question still remains, why did Jesus live 33 years? Why did he live those three horrible years? The last three horrible years where people spat at him. People shamed him. People guilted him. He was on trial by the very people that he created the brains. Why, why would he do that? How about the first 30 years? Why, why did he live that? I mean, have you ever thought about Jesus as a child? You know, we don't, we don't see a lot of commentary from Scripture of what Jesus was like as a child. But have you ever wondered, like, did Jesus know calculus? The answer is yes. Okay, but what, could you imagine what Jesus was like as a little boy? Okay, how wonderfully perfect he was and how wonderfully annoying he was to his younger brother. Could you imagine James trying to meet the expectations of his older brother living under that kind of scrutiny? Mary going to James like, James, you broke that dish again. Why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, Mom, which toga should I wear? Well, what would Jesus do? I mean, could you imagine just the scrutiny? How annoying. No wonder James didn't believe at first, right? Do you even wonder that? Do you wonder what Jesus as a kid, what he was like? Why did he live 33 years? I'll tell you why. When Jesus was about to be baptized, he went to John the Baptist and 
asked John, John, you must baptize me. And John said, no way, no way, you're Christ. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you need to baptize me. And then says, because I must fulfill all righteousness. I must fulfill all righteousness. To simply put, the reason why Jesus had to live a full perfect life was that so that that perfect life will be given into your account and our sinful life will be given into his account okay on the cross God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life so that God could treat us as if we had lived his life what an incredible gospel what an unworthy gospel what an unworthy love. He looks at Ryan Kwan tonight and says, Ryan Kwan, he lived the perfect life. And he comes to us tonight. And if you put your faith in Christ, he says, you lived a perfect life. What love. Evie Hill, a famous African-American preacher in L.A., I got to. In, in my beginning journey of Christianity, he, was, he had this incredible testimony of his church being a faithful man of God. He was an effective preacher of the gospel. He stood against the, the sins of his city. And he stood for it and he fought for it. And during the L.A. riots, he, he stood and preached against the very community that was destroying the community itself. So he preached against it and he started to get death threats. He started to get significant threats. And one day as he and his wife was having a lovely dinner at home, he got the phone and he picked it up and said, hello. And he heard. And they hung up. Who was that, dear? Oh, nothing. Nobody. It was nobody. And of course, all wives, they're, they're installed with this amazing super spidey vision, <laughs> spidey sense, and they know when something's going wrong. So she said, no, 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 no. You tell me who that was. And Evie Hill said, it was somebody who was threatening my life. It was somebody who said, that they were going to plant a bomb in my car and that when I turned on my ignition, that I would be blown up into bits and pieces. That night, that night, he tells the story of all night how they fought to stay up, looking at their outside rustic carport. They didn't have garages then and they're exposed with his car and then nervous, nervous, jittering just all night long he was he was he was scrutinized by the darkness and he he was wondering what was going to happen and they kept on trying to see if anybody would come to the car eventually they both fell asleep and he woke up the next morning and his wife was gone and he looked outside and his car was gone so he frantically searched his house for his wife, and then finding nothing, he ran outside, started running down his block, only to see his wife driving in with his car. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I couldn't bear the thought of you getting into the car and turning on the ignition. So I did it. 
And he says, from that day, I never questioned her love for me. Now, this illustration gravely fails because Christ comes into our car and knowing, not if, but actually there is a bomb, he turns it and he goes. He dies on our behalf. And for us to sit in this room and wonder if Christ loves us, it's preposterous. Christ loves you. He's radically affectionate towards you. He has died for you freely, joyfully. See? Do you have this treasure? Do you have this kind of gospel in you? If you don't, you need to dig further for this treasure. Let me share a second principle that I find in this scripture here. So spiritual treasure is not only found in the field of the ordinary. Spiritual treasure revolutionizes every part of your life. Every part of your life. Now one way you know that you found this treasure is every part of your life is revolutionized. Everything's different. You're never the same. Now notice in these two parables, you have such different figures. One of them is a poor farmer. The other one was a merchant who was most likely rich. One of them had no understanding of the value. The other one absolutely had absolutely figured out how much it was going to cost. They're very different, and yet the only similar thing is that their life was absolutely changed forever. And forever and ever and ever because now they become incredibly wealthy. Now the question is, what revolutionized their life? What changed? How did they change? Well, you must consider three things. First, you must just absolutely reassess the value of this treasure with your mind. You've got to think. You've got to reassess it with your mind. Now, both of these people saw the treasure and they absolutely thought, hmm, How much is this worth? It is absolutely worth way more than anything that I have. Everything that I have. So this person, this farmer, doesn't go to the realtor and says, I know that this land is worth a billion dollars, and I want it, and I know that I'm going to get it for only a fraction, but you know what? I would hate to give up my flowery couch. Or I would hate to give up my palm pilot kind of have some good sentiments. You know, I would hate to give up my Nokia brick phone. I would hate to give that up. Nobody says that. If somebody were to say that, all I would just plead to them is, think. Just think. Assess the value of what you are receiving as a treasure, which is far more than anything that you can give with your life. And that's why Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says, your life is a ledger book. You know, you know how a company assesses its value? It assesses their expenses versus their gain. And when they have such gain, and you extract expenses, and whatever that's left over is the value of the company. And Paul says this. After assessing with his mind, he says, I consider that my sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. 
He says, I consider, I count, I calculate, but I could handle all my sufferings. Because you see, my life right now is all but a waiting room into the eternal glory of Jesus Christ in his presence. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's just a waiting room. And you're just waiting. It's going to be a short time. And you're going to see the Father, and you're going to see his beatific glory. You will live in his presence forever and ever and ever. And only people who know this world is just a waiting room. Only are they who actually assess what is my value and what is Christ's value and says, I want the land. And they do it joyfully. Here's the second thing. You must assess the value of this treasure with your heart, not just with your mind. Not must you just think, but you must actually feel the joy. You see, this farmer and this merchant are simply overwhelmed emotionally, and they're filled with joy because they just not, they don't just know they're rich, but they feel their richness. They can't believe it. That's why they're running. Do you see in this text right here, which is so beautiful, this, this man, he finds this treasure in this field, and it says, which the man found, and guess what? It says, he covers it up. Why do you think he covers it up? He doesn't want anybody else to find it. He knows the value of this. So he runs to the realtor's office and says, give me this land, I'll sell everything for it. And he feels the joy. He feels the rush. It's like playing cards and you know you have the winning hand. You know it. You're going to win. And so he's going to buy this land because he knows that this land is worth much, much exponentially more than everything he could ever offer through his life. So you must assess the value of this treasure with your heart. Absolutely. You have to feel this gospel with your heart. I think about my dad a lot. Ever since mom passed, I think about him. I think about his life. He's had a hard life. He came to this country as an immigrant. He didn't speak any English. He didn't have a job. He didn't have an education. But he wanted to go to college. So he worked very hard. And by day, he went to school. By night, he worked at an airport as a janitor. And he wanted to become an engineer, so he became one. And did relatively well until he got laid off. And after he got laid off, to support the family, he looked around to see what kind of skill set he had. And there was no other skill set that he could find but to um, sell purses, women's purses. Now, my dad did not know a single thing about women's purses. He had no idea. He had no perspective of what looked good and what's fashionable and nothing. And yet he went to a swap meet and started selling women's purses. And worse yet, he would invite me to work for him on Saturdays. (laughs) This looks great on you. It was awful. I was always reluctant to go. And yet the days when I went, kicking and dragging my feet, He would try to curb my regret by buying me lunch. 
He says, why don't you go to the cafeteria and buy yourself a burrito? And I happily went with my five bucks. And I would get my burrito. And I always used to see my dad eating a white loaf of bread. And I used to say, Dad, why are you eating a, a white loaf of bread? And he would say, if I just ate this, then my profit margins increase. I want to save money for the family. I want to be able to support your dreams. My father at the store would not take gulps of water. He would barely sip it. Because he couldn't stand to, he couldn't stand to, stand to just, just lose the sale if he had to go to the bathroom and leave his door abandoned. Now, my dad is sick. Without his wife, his kidneys are failing. He's all in dialysis. I think about my dad a lot. I think about what he's done for me. And there's nothing on earth that I would not do for him if he asked. At a moment's notice, I'll drive or fly. At a moment's notice, I will fetch whatever he wants me to fetch. At a moment's notice, I will bow down and obey. All in light of the sacrifice that he paid so that my brother, my mother, and I could have the life that we have now. And the very byproduct of his sacrifice is the very reason why I get to stand up here to preach the gospel to the church of 1122. I'm grateful for him. But my allegiance to him is nothing compared to my allegiance towards Christ. And my wife and I have decided long ago If the last four years is going to be the next four years, we've decided it is well with our soul. Why? Why? It's because of the treasure. And whatever I could sell, whatever I could gather up in those four years is nothing compared to the great joy and the glory that I have in the presence of Christ and His gospel. So all day, I will go through suffering. And I know I'm not alone. That in this room, many of you are going through hard times. And I would just encourage you. It's nothing. No, it's something. I know it's hard, but it's really when you compare it with the treasure and the brilliance and the price of the gospel, I pray that it would pale in comparison to what you have to eventually give up. Tonight, I want to call you 
I want to call you to assessing the beauty of this gospel that we've been talking about for the last hour. There are some of you who are here for the very first time. There are some of you who, for the very first time, have heard the gospel. Maybe it's the very tenth time, but you've been walking by the gospel every single day because it was so ordinary. Maybe you've never made a rational realization of the price of the gospel. And maybe you never rationally and emotionally have thought, you know what? Whatever I have to give up to obtain the gospel, it is absolutely worth it. It is the treasure in the field. And I will sell everything. And the reality is, the reason why you have not pursued Christ is because you feel like what you have is worth more than the treasure itself. And I want to plead with you, friend, that that's not true. That there's no love like the gospel. There's a reason why early Christians went into the lion's pit singing. There's a reason why. That early Christians were generous beyond belief. That early Christians were not afraid of death. Last month, I, I made a new friend, a, a, a friend who, who said to me, I've been a Christian for 17 years. And he was from the Middle East. But the day that he committed his life to Christ, he saw the beauty of this treasure and he said, more of you, Christ, more of you. And so he invited Christ into his life. But that meant the rejection of his family. Worse yet, his father, when he showed up to tell the news, pulled out a gun and pointed it to his head. And he's telling the story saying, I want you to denounce your commitment to Jesus or I will pull the trigger. And seeing the value of this treasure that he's found, he says, Daddy, I love you. But I worship a God that not only knows the hair on my head and the way it parts, but I worship a God that is in control of your trigger finger. And if you choose to pull it, then he says, glory to God. Because I will see him face to face. And he shut his eyes and waited to see his dad pull the trigger. And his father dropped the gun. And he says he hadn't seen his family for 17 years. Can it be true, maybe potentially true, That being a Christian in our country, because of the lifestyle that we get to live, because of the freedom that we get to have, that we somehow diminish the beauty and the cost of the gospel. And I want to plead with you for for many of you who, who, who don't know Christ, that you would tonight deeply consider 
this great treasure. That all that you ever feared of losing is all but a shadow. And you will one day see in the face of Christ. What a promise. But you must, you must let go. You must sell everything. See, some of us have been lied to. Some of us have heard that you could just follow Christ by um, just giving something, something very little. And then maybe I could, maybe I could gain salvation. Maybe I could say the words and then maybe he'll save me. The size of your gospel is the size of your commitment to Christ. And the bigger the gospel is to you, the bigger the commitment that you will have for Jesus. And what Jesus will say to all of us tonight is, drop your nets, follow me, come, die, resurrect, rejoice, be in the presence of God forever. I ask you to just bow your heads with me. Nobody on this earth has ever truly seen this treasure and seen truly this pearl. And made a moderate declaration for Christ. Nobody. But for those who God reveals. For those whose eyes are illuminated. To see the treasure in this gospel. They lay it all down. And I'm learning this day by day. And for some of you, you've been brought here. Some of you have been spoken into by the Holy Spirit. And you don't need more nudging by the Spirit of God. The Spirit has already given you that nudging. But it nudged you so that you can now obey and to sell. Because the cost of the gospel is great. It costed his son's life. And so Christ says, will you lay down your entire life, not a portion of your life? Will you lay down everything for God's glory? It's like riding a bicycle. The Spirit will guide you when you start pedaling. The only way you're going to start feeling guided by the Spirit is if you obey and God calls you. Come unto me. Come. Confess your sins. I'll give you rest. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you acceptance. I will give you
give you love. If the gospel is illuminated into your heart tonight, I would love to pray for you. We would love to minister to you. We would love to receive you and cheer for you and celebrate with you. But again, it's a high calling. We're not looking for numbers. Well, I certainly am not. We're looking for disciples who will leave it all because they see the great treasure in Christ. And if you're ready to make that decision, would you just raise your hand so that we could pray for you here at this church? Yes. Just raise your hands high. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Praise God. Yes. I see you. Father, I trust with all my heart that for those people who've raised their hands, is declaring to you, O oh God, you are worth not a portion of my life, but everything of my life. Every content, every being, every affection, we now give to you because we know that the gospel is greater than everything that I owe. So I thank you, Jesus, that upon their confession, upon their confession to say that I cannot save myself, I need you, and that your love is greater than any other effectual love in this world. And so I choose you. Guide my life. Father, for those who declare that, will you, Father, just so marvelously just illuminate their hearts even more tonight that they might become a radical disciple of you. Thank you. Because the angels and the heavens rejoice for these people. And so tonight we rejoice in your great faithfulness. Eleven twenty-two. I want to invite you to one other thing, if I may. Just one quick thing. I've been praying for not only 1122, but I've been praying for Jacksonville. Long before I've come, when I met Pastor Joby and Pastor Ben, and we realized we had a kinder spirit, I started praying for Jacksonville. I started praying that over a million people Bible Belt or not, would absolutely surrender their life to Christ. And that they'd be willing to sell everything that they have in light of the worth of the gospel. And that Jacksonville 
will all of a sudden make such a rumbling in the evangelical world that people, even from Fremont, California, Texas, Oklahoma, will look at Jacksonville and say, what the heck is going on in Jacksonville? What's going on? What is this radical movement about? Who started it all? What's happening? And can I share with you what will actually and eventually become a movement? What will become a movement? It's not just a few of you. It's going to take all of you. Every single one of you. There are people who are not here. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. And God has called every single one of you here tonight for a reason. And he hasn't called you to give yourself a a portion of your life. He wants it all. Because he needs an army of people to rise up in their generation in order to minister to people in another generation that you will not even see. Here's the reality, that your life will count absolutely. It's a very short life. And I want to invite you, I want to invite you to absolutely rejoice in what is ahead of you. And that God, that you would, you would invite God to say, God, use me in a radical way as I offer not most of my things, but everything that I have. But here's the reality, too, that there is a generation in Jacksonville, and this is my prayer, that is unborn yet. But because of your faithfulness tonight, and because you are willing to rise up for Jacksonville and for the nations here at 1122, that God will raise up an army of believers that will abandon it all, persecution or not, to say yes to Jesus, that after everything is over, after we see Christ face to face, he will give you the great privilege to show you this unborn generation now that is born because of your fruit, because of your obedience. And that Jacksonville would have changed forever for Christ's glory. For Christ's glory. And I want to call you. You didn't know that this is actually a recruiting service. You didn't know. But you came to a service of recruitment. And we are recruiting tonight people who will stand up for Christ and who will give it all for Christ. If that's you, could I just ask you to stand from your seat? Yes. Stand. Stand for Christ, Jacksonville. Yes. Look. (laughs) Would you just look around? Just spend a moment. Just look around. Just look around. God has built an army in this place. (laughs) God has built an army. And he's going to use you, Sarah Smith of Jacksonville, okay, to do incredible things. Let us rejoice. Let us sing. 
But before we do that, let us offer our lives to God. Will you raise your hands? Stretch tie. Come what may, O Jesus, here I am. Use me. Because what is fame up there is not fame down here. Whatever's famous down here is not fame up there. What you are calling are people unto yourself. Radical disciples who will offer their entire lives to you so that Jacksonville will never be the same again. Tonight is a night where you are calling an army of people Disciples not only committed to become disciples, but disciples who are committed to making disciples who then will make disciples that will change the fabric of this country forever. Why will you use 1122? And I'm praying, God, why not? Why not use us? Why not use the people in this room? May you, oh Christ, have all the glory For now and forevermore, we worship you, Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.